Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Matthew Matheson. You can connect with Matthew at his website, thespeakingcoach.co.uk. All of his socials are linked on his website. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Matthew has selected the organization Cancer Research. So please join me in donating. I love so many aspects of this conversation and of Matthew's work. He has a background in improv, and I think that serves him really well as a public speaking coach. And we delve into many aspects of public speaking. One of my favorite parts of this conversation is talking about the myth of rapport. And I think as a core tenet, me and Matthew would both posit that public speaking is a skill that any person can acquire. And there isn't a quote unquote right way or good way to be a speaker. So we speak about how, let's say, someone who's quiet and introverted and maybe even really shy can be an excellent public speaker. I point my thumbs to myself here because, well, I don't want to call myself an excellent public speaker, but I have gone from a place of zero skill, all the fear, all the anxiety in the world to at least a pretty competent speaker. So I'm a testament to the power of this work. And we also speak tactically about how to build a compelling talk. We even workshop storytelling in this conversation. And Matthew takes me on a journey of my own storytelling style. And I think that as you listen, you'll get a little feel and flavor for what your style is. And you will leave this conversation feeling like, wow, I can be a good public speaker. Public speaking is a skill that I can acquire too. And there's other myths about public speaking that we deconstruct in the conversation. And we also talk about how everyone is really craving to be authentic and what it takes to be an authentic and sincere communicator who also has skills to convey whatever message you're trying to get across as a speaker. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Matthew Matheson. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, Matt. Hey, great to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. It's a, a very timely conversation for me. We actually didn't speak about this before jumping on, but I'm leading a big public speaking workshop tonight and still kind of working through exactly what the clear takeaway I want for the audience to have from the conversation is. And I I get the sense that after this conversation, because of the dialogue we'll have and the back and forth that we will have, that I'll have some more clarity about how I can show up tonight as a facilitator, as an instructor. And uh, I guess from the onset, I just wanted to share that I, I appreciate your presence and the way that you show up to this work. It's, it's something that I aspire to in in this arena as well. So right from the onset, just thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's really powerful and I'm really glad to be having this conversation today in particular. 
Yeah, and thank you for having me and for the kind words and amazing that you got the workshop this evening. And, you know, I think uh, these kind of conversations I find are, are brilliant, these, these two-way conversations by similar people, because mm -hmm. as you say, they do lead to insights. Yes. You know, because I know that I'll, I'll get as much from this conversation as you will, if not more, I know that. I don't have a big room of people this evening, unfortunately, like like you do. But I am going straight into coaching calls after this. And there's something really important about kind of, oh, what's the phrase? Kind of like, you know, exploring the craft at this kind of one-to-one -one level rather than just doing the craft. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a bit like a bit like supervision and counseling. You know, you mm -hmm. have your counseling sessions, but then you have your supervision group, which is where you explore it, you deepen it. And, you know, for me, these kind of conversations are a bit like that and they're really beautiful. So um you know, I'm really, really happy to be here with you. Thanks for mm. having me. Mm. Well, I start every single conversation the same way. And I would love to know, Matt, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? What was it like at my dinner table when I was growing up? So I guess I have to think about what age we're talking about here, really. So got a very interesting story. So so I was I was taken into foster care when I was three and a half. And by a family who, who came and collected me from the hospital that my biological mother was at, actually. And they took me into their home and then over the coming years, folded me into the family, very literally. I was also adopted by this family and, and very much taken in as their own. And some of the key themes at the dinner table that probably came up with this family was, was there was consistency. You know, we would always eat together as a family at the dinner table, which was lovely. And I still hold true to that now as much as possible. I think it's good to break bread together for want of a, for want of a better expression. And music is a topic that came up an awful lot. Very music minded in our family. Church, actually, funnily enough. So I grew up in a, uh, a Christian Baptist environment. And, you know, like, for example, Sunday, we'd get back from church and, you know, the same routine. Sunday roast would be cooked, you know, and we'd sit down as a family and have a great big roast and and you know maybe discuss the service and 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 what that means for us and occasionally we'd have guests round as well really saturday night was always curry night um and we'd uh so getting a little bit older when i was a bit braver and more up for eating curries you know saturday night would consist of you know mum setting the table us ordering a takeaway curry or mum cooking a curry and then us playing house music very loud while sitting down to eat said curry <laughs> which was a, an interesting quirk of our family that there's a love for electronic music right away from my dad who's nearly 80 all the way through to you know me and and this that and the other it's an interesting quirk but it was very much traditional family conversation food you know you, you ask permission within reason you know when you're done uh, the chores would get done afterwards so it was a, a strong traditional family environment i'd say at the uh, at the dinner table hmm. So definitely one of my come froms in this question is, I guess in, in this particular conversation, I want to know what your origins are around public speaking and coaching. Where, mm -hmm. where did that come from for you? And I, one of the reasons I asked this question, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up is I feel like it's a beautiful portal into what you were maybe like as a child and how you were raised, what your family values were. And I don't know in what way this informs how you got into coaching and or public speaking, but 
What would you say brought you into this line of work? Yeah, there's a number of threads that brought me into this line of work. So I'll, I'll kind of weave my way around them as best possible here for you. So if I think about the threads from my childhood and then look at how those then started to manifest around, you know, maybe a bit of self-awareness about this stuff as I became a little bit older. Um, you know, I had a solid family family unit, but I had a, a troubled school life. And without going into too much detail, you know, I was, I was the unpopular kid at school. That's that's that characterized a significant part of my childhood at school, which I think led to some mechanisms around always trying to put a bright spin on stuff in order to kind of combat some of the issues around around bullying and ostracization and stuff that that, that happened there. And you know, this manifested maybe in a form of um, people pleasing. You know, trying to keep the peace, trying to go over and above in order to maintain harmony or avoid conflict or any of those kind of things. And I know there's a pattern there from my childhood that's kind of manifested in my adult behavior. Now, kind of taking that seed and unpacking that a little bit, how that showed up for me subconsciously, and there's other threads we'll look at, but with kind of it, manifested as 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 maybe a subconscious need to like help people and if you speak to a lot of people who move into the kind of counseling space as a profession you know i'm currently working my way through level three now after completing my level two they tend to kind of like attract these people who have got these kind of people pleasing tendencies because they want to help other people because they felt traditionally that their value can come from helping other people you know, even though now I'm aware that that's not where my value will come from, you know, I, I value myself now as an individual, but the early seeds were definitely in that desire to kind of help people in my early career that just showed up as um, always trying to help people, you know, when I was working in IT and the web and this, that and the other and always saying yes to people and all this, that and the other. And then as I got older, when I moved into my mid-20s, early 20s, a number of threads started to come together to give a little bit of clarity on, on where I where I was, what I was good at. And here's a few of these threads. So first of all, I went to work for um, an agency called Nixon McInnes, which were more popular for how they worked than what they did. And they were quite groundbreaking at the time, open book accounting, democratic decision-making right the way across the business. And there was a real culture of unlocking what you believe in okay and a lot of autonomy around how we work i got a job there the second thread that started to come into view at this point was around improvisation as a skill so i took my first improv course improv being the art of kind of being in the moment and creating content in the moment as a i mean at the moment it's a comedy form but if you look into its history it's actually a teaching framework for creative self-expression I started studying improv and then did a second course and then did a third course and it took over my life, you know, whilst I was also starting this kind of consultancy career, which was moving in the space of behavior change. Then went to Chicago, studied improv out there, and it really became a big part, started coaching troops, performing. And then I was like, hold on, what's what's behind this? And I realized through a bit of research that actually it's a teaching framework for creative self-expression, collaboration, and confidence, not a comedy form. So I start to go, wait a minute, this could work really well. 
for teams and for people, you know, like forget the comedy. How do we apply these principles of of trusting your gut, using everything, seeing everything as an offer, focusing on the strengths, one step at a time, all these kind of things to to working with groups. So I started kind of weaving in these little improv activities into the workshops I was running for clients that could just be a road mapping workshop or a project management workshop. It's like, no, we're going to do an improv activity and this, that, and the other. And separately, I started going on programs and retreats and workshops, which brought my gaze inward a little bit. And I went on one particular event out in India, which is called A Journey of Self-Discovery with a coach called David Frez at the time. And it was a key moment for me. Spent 10 days just looking at who I am and what I do and how I operate and really becoming aware of, okay, where's this natural self-expression? And it's kind of in the ability to motivate people and empower people and excite people. And to find this out, I looked at all aspects of my life, my relationships, my the, the good ones, the bad ones, the, the work, all sorts of, okay, this, this is where the thing is. So then coming back from that, it was like, okay, there's this desire to help other people that's rooted in childhood experience. There's these skills around improvisation. And then this is a then there's this awareness of, you know, a, a natural strength being kind of like getting people excited about stuff and taking action and motivation. Then I started to crystal that into some work, crystallize that into some workshop offerings. And the very first manifestation of what's now my six-point speaker program was when we had American Express contact us actually as an agency and say, hey, we're running an event. We need someone, you know, we're going to bring all the speakers from inside Amex and we need someone to to work with the speakers. Turns out Matt in the agency, you know, has got stage experience and improv experience and we just designed it there and then. And that was kind of the first essence of it. That was probably about probably 13, 14 years ago, I'd say. So those came together and since then, one stream that seemed to be coming to me naturally rather than stuff I've had to go out hard and sell is communication, public speaking, self-expression, confidence. And then at some point I decided then just to double down on that as, as my USP, if you like, the one thing that I do. And that's, that's where I'm at now. Hmm. Well, that was a, a beautiful summation in my estimation of all, all the different threads. There's, there's a lot of different, it's an embarrassment of riches almost with the <laughs> number of directions that I could go given what you've laid out. But just a, first a housekeeping thing, because I want to make sure that I link all the, the names and maybe if there's books that come up during the conversation in the show notes, is it David Ferez? Is that the coach that you worked with? Yes. And how do you spell that last name? So that's F-E-R-R-E-R-S. F-E-R-R-E-R-S. Yeah. And that's not the uh, tennis coach. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> He's a career coach and um, uh, writer. Okay. We'll do. So David Ferrer's, I'll, I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. I want to just reflect a little bit of, so one, I feel really seen by your story. I, as someone who's also a helper of sorts, I identify as formerly and a still recovering people pleaser. And so that really resonated with me. And maybe one of the threads that I would want to continue to pull with you is how have you What's the question here? There's a way that wanting to help people is absolutely a gift. And when it's overextended, there's a shadow side of that where you 
started to point to this, you're not looking at your own needs. You are, you, there's a way that you're deriving your entire worth on, I'm the type of person who says yes to everything, who takes care of everybody else. And probably you didn't say this explicitly, but th- that probably left you feeling depleted or not resourced in, in some way. And so I wonder how going inward, how did you start to reconcile that? Like, how did you start to delineate? Yes, I do want to help people. And that's, that's something that I'm really good at, but like, there's a boundary that I need to create here. And and so what did that start to look like for you? It's a good question. Well, I like how you say like recovering people, please. (laughs) You know, it's, (laughs) and to me, recovering implies there is still like residue or you know there's it's, it's still there you know or, or and, and coming back to the question of like how do you create the boundaries or what's the point at which you know for me it's about kind of like like something being subconscious versus something being conscious and surfacing it so the unhelpful side of it is one when this is a subconscious pattern or behavior which is driving your actions and your thoughts and your desires and your behaviors essentially you know how you operate almost on autopilot Mm. and i think it starts with just becoming aware that i'm feeling unfulfilled or that these aren't actually meeting my needs or that actually in the relationships where i'm overextending in this space it's not actually creating more harmony between me and the person I'm overextending to, and it's doing the opposite. Mm. So I think that's the first realization is, is actually checking in and suddenly waking up, hold on, wait a minute, is this, this, this is not working for me, and that's a felt sensation rather than a logical conclusion. Once you then get a felt sensation, it's like, okay, let's start digging into that. And I know for me, as, I, as I've got older and become more aware of my body and the alignment between my body and my brain, et cetera, et cetera. I start to use that as cues of, okay, what's going on, you know? And it was like, actually, wait a minute, something's not right here. And then starting to surface that. And there's numerous ways you can do that, you know, with a coach or through therapy. I mean, I've had loads of therapy. I'm also studying to be a therapist at the moment. And that was probably a real, that was a real area where I could really distinctly draw that thread from some of these seed events to how I've then kind of like operated as, as a human being. So in, in summarizing, maybe like how it's like, first for me, it's something you feel. And then you explore the, I explored the feeling, realized that actually in other relationships, this was showing up, started to try to develop self-awareness from, okay, how are other people seeing how I act? Oh gosh, they're seeing this show up this way as well. And then starting to go, right, how do I work with this? And then that was through therapy, retreats, coaching, trans- blah, 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 all the bits and pieces that you and I love <laughs> you yes. know, to, to kind of dive into this. Hmm. So one, one of the other threads that I want to pull on is with improv. I have only taken less than a handful of classes. I've probably taken three to five improv classes, but I'm really drawn to the way that improv, not in the, in the comedic way that you were you you were you were saying that actually improv is really this kind of presence based let's react and respond to each other in real time in the present moment and almost like feel each other feeling each other is is the way that i am visualizing it and i i wonder how you still use 
Are there exercises that people could take home as they're listening right now that would be helpful to help them be more attuned to the present moment? What what are some ways that you look at improv right now as a way that you can, or maybe ways that you help your students, clients use tools from improv so that they can more effectively respond in the moment? Yeah. So I think it, without any shadow of a doubt, it's it's connecting with emotions very viscerally. I distinctly remember being in an improv workshop and there was two lines of people and then there was two chairs. I can't for the life of me remember the name of the teacher. We're going back probably 10, 12 years ago now. It's the gentleman had come over from the US and it was organized by uh, a Brighton troupe who deliver loads of amazing training called the May Days, you know, and they still do. And I did all my early training with them. But I remember they brought him over and he was running this workshop. And one by one, you know, two lines of people, we would sit down to have a one-to-one scene with the person opposite us. And it would start being quite transactional conversation and it wouldn't be a thing. And then he would just say, how do you feel? And he'd point to the first person about that. And they would kind of screw the face a little bit and search for a second and go, okay, I feel like I, f- I feel, I feel good about this. And he said, and why? And then uh, they pushed him into the content and then he goes straight to the next person. He said, okay, how do you feel about that? And why? And then he come back to the next person and say, right now, how do you feel about that? And why? And then come back to the next. Now, how do you feel about that? <laughs> and why? And it unlocked the most incredible dialogue, you know, like all the emotions don't come from your head. They come from your body and getting down into the body at that level unlocks authentic responses where you don't have to think. And this is probably the strongest underpinning that I've kind of brought into the coaching. It's, 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 so for those listening, it's like, okay, you know, start asking when you're unsure what to say, a framework, I always say, if you're stuck and you want an authentic response is ask yourself how you feel about that thing and why. And that will give you a hundred percent authentic response. Mm. So if somebody says that, what do you think about football? And I was following that framework. I'd say, oh, well, when I think about football, I feel, search for the, mo- the emotion, nonchalant. Why? Because as a kid, I remember hating football and being the one kid that would line up waiting to be picked for the team and would never get chosen. You know, or, if, or in a business context, if somebody said, oh, Matt, what do you think about the, tell me your thoughts on the marketing plan and say, okay, when I look at the marketing plan, I feel anxious. Why? Because I can see we haven't got the numbers. I'm hearing that people are struggling with what's going on. We haven't done, and you know, that is, it's really connecting with how you feel with stuff and then expressing that. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. That, that that's how we connect as human beings is through emotion, whether conscious or subconscious. So get down to that space as quickly as possible and stuff starts to flow. It's really incredible how connecting to emotions uh, unlocks that type of communication and also how absent that feels to me. I mean, my background, I believe you know, is in accounting. And I don't know if I've ever checked in at a meeting with accountants or or even in one-on-one meetings with a, a genuine, how, how are we feeling about what's happening right now? It's a very heady industry, of course, for good reason. And there's so much information that's not being addressed 
looked at if we're only in our head. And so getting in touch with my emotions and my body has been really foundational in my journey inward as well, that <laughs> I realize, man, like I'm, I'm really not accessing the full picture here if I'm just trying to respond analytically to things all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I imagine that's really foundational for a lot of people who are, are coming to work with you, whether it's for public speaking or just general coaching, is a lot of it just helping them reacclimate to the emotions that they probably haven't been allowing themselves to experience, to feel? Like, what, what is someone usually showing up with to work with you? I'm guessing at a surface level, maybe they have a big talk coming up or, or something like that. So like, yeah, we're, we're, I think you understand what I'm getting at here. Yeah, it's a good question. So, so who who are the people who? T- how, what do people typically bring when in the space that I work in? And you know, everyone's a little bit different. So, there's a range of people I work with, but the majority of people, I would say, I mean, there are the people. There's so at one level, there's there's those who are already very proficient speakers and they really want to polish, or they're at an exec level, and it's a kind of lead communication as a leadership tool kind of thing. But a huge swathe of the folks that I work with, it actually presents as being really, really anxious about speaking up, whether that's in a meeting, whether that's on stage, whether that's in a client pitch and presentation, and really believing that they have no idea what to do and it's holding them back. So they're not they're not being their congruent selves. They're, they're not acting how they want to act in these situations or they're completely avoiding them. And that nearly always is as a result of, you know, one or more, one or a few more things. You num- Number one, there may be some specific experience or bit of feedback that they've been given at some key point, which has then dented their confidence and has colored how they see all these other experiences in their life, communication experiences, or they've just stepped into a new role that they've suddenly got to level up in. And they're really anxious about suddenly being thrown into the limelight with lots of people. Yeah, so that that those tend to be the kind of folks that that, that I'm working with, I would say. Well, I, I think that I at one point would have been a perfect client for you, Matt. I <laughs> I know that I was I think I was born pretty shy. I, I know I was born pretty shy. So that my natural temperament was to be an observer and to not draw too much attention to myself. And I also have some life experiences of when I allowed myself to be visible in front of a group of people, there was some level of embarrassment that happened. If maybe I stuttered or froze, said something the wrong way, drew attention to myself in a way that I experienced as negative, felt immense embarrassment. And that actually led me to my career choice in accounting. In some ways, there are lots of other factors. There's a confluence of many things, but I with some level of introspection and reflection, I have come to realize that I wanted to hide in in a lot of ways. I wanted to have a career that I wasn't going to be confronted with having to show myself in front of clients or be exposed in any sort of way. And what I didn't realize about accounting was that was probably true for the first couple of years. I really could get by without having to speak up very much at all. And as I progressed in any sort of way, got promoted one or two times, I realized I have to speak to clients, I have to lead trainings. And so that's actually what brought me into public speaking 
Mm. I, I realized this is a really important skill and I'm ill-equipped to do it. And I've, I've been spending my whole life trying to avoid this thing. And what I actually backed into in, in finding this work is that I became, I have become so much more comfortable in my own skin. I'm able to, even when I'm really nervous, I think after just a few seconds, I've, I've done enough reps, I've done enough practice at this point that I'm able to speak with a level of accuracy, congruence, authenticity to who I am and, and what I'm wanting to communicate. And I don't know if I would have ever got that gift without doing a lot of introspection, a lot of workshops, a lot of different classes. So I wanted to just name that as an advertisement, I guess, of how powerful the work that you're doing is and that that I'm drawn to as well. And I, I would love to spend pretty much the rest of the conversation talking about how you look at public speaking. One of the things that I'm really drawn to and when we first connected was around quiet people. And I think that I know that I have fallen into the trap of thinking that I need to be loud, gregarious, charming. I don't know that there's a certain archetype of speaker who is the Tony Robbins flavor that is high charge, high energy, commands the room, authoritative. And I, I'm not that guy. That's never been who I am. I probably could channel that, but I find that there's way more power in channeling who you are as a speaker. So with regards to the, the folks who are more anxious, who have in some way been avoiding public speaking their whole life, how do you help them channel their gifts as a, a speaker? Because I know that as a, as a quiet person myself, I, I actually know that I'm a really good speaker now. I, I don't have to try and be someone else. I'm, I'm comfortable with who I am. How do you help people have that realization, especially quiet folks? Yeah, it's a good question. To move into it, I'd like to separate the idea of anxious folk and quiet folk. Mm. Because they're two different, you know, they're not always linked. You know, I have the most, oh, what's, what's the phrase? Like the, some of the most confident people on the outside are also very anxious on the inside. And that presents as confidence or a loud voice or the, the, the Tony Robin-esque kind of thing that we talk about. So there's, there's, there's working with anxiety. And then there's working with people who identify as quiet or perhaps in other terms, more introverted and the, the the two are quite separate so you know let's let's dive into the quiet thing first and then we can maybe talk about anxiety and stuff afterwards one of the real deep beliefs that i have is that our goals as coaches is not to make quiet people loud is not to change how quiet people think is not to succumb and conform to some of the biases that have developed over the past 80 years around loud is better. That it just compounds the issue. And this, this, this false view that that quiet is somehow less successful or less good. And, and indeed, I think we talked about this last, last time we had a conversation is, you know, there's enough research out there now done that shows actually some of the most successful and well-respected leaders of recent times and beyond, you know, are actually more thoughtful, quieter types than the big, bold, boisterous 
uh, types. And all you have to do is look at recent times to see the difference in styles. You know, so so we need to trust. First of all, there's, there's an element of like, you know, from what we'd say in the counseling world, like, you know, unconditional positive regard. It's like the these whether you're quiet or loud, you're enough. I'm really accepting that. So then to move from, okay, so I'm a quieter person, but I now need to find myself standing up in front of others more and need to be presenting more, public speaking more, because this is a choice I've made rather than something that's forced upon me, which is a whole different kettle of fish. Then for me, this is about, okay, how do we define what this looks like for you in such a way that it feels authentic and natural and is an expression of your true self rather than teaching you to be like that loud person over there? And this is where looking for me, like just a few areas that I would move into to do this is, is number one, figuring out, okay, what's their natural storytelling style? you know, this person, what's their natural storytelling style? You know, how, how do they like, so based on a play placed on their history, based on their preference around media and films and books, you know, what feels like a safe and comfortable framework to operate in based on how they can structure things. So, so I would look to uncover what their natural storytelling style is by looking at where they, where they enjoy consuming things. You know, and then that'll start to surface subconscious familiarities they have around. Okay, I typically go for this kind of thing. Oh, great. So this is a way we could maybe express that. It's not something you're uncomfortable with. The second is looking at other areas of their life of where they express themselves in ways that they want to express themselves when they're on stage and are doing inverted commas. So whether introverted, extroverted, quiet or loud, we all have had people hang on every word that we've said at some point. We've all held court. We've all delivered incredible messages. We've all had someone drop what they're doing and listen to us. We've all commanded power. We've all done this and we do it all the time in our life, but we do it subconsciously based on our subconscious needs and desires and what's happening in the moment. So another thing is, like I say, is this, okay, let's have a look at elsewhere in your life. Where do you show up like this? How do you want to be? Okay, I want to be like this. Okay, great. Where else do you show up? Ah, oh, when I'm with my family. Or when I do this, or when I'm with my partner, or when I'm at a concert, or 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 when I'm round down the pub with my friends, I really feel like I step into this. It's like, okay, great, cool. So we have got something here already. Now, what does that look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Let's have a go at trying it on here. Oh gosh, there's a character here that I can pull from that's still authentic. And once we've started to uncover these kind of things, then we'll need to look at, you know, what Pete Mosley who's an excellent writer. He's done a book, The Art the Art of Shouting Quietly, a guide to self-promotion for introverts and other quiet souls, he calls it. He talks about this concept of social energy. So rather than introverts and extroverts, he says we all have different levels of social energy. And some of us have a higher natural level of social energy, us extroverts, if you like, and then others have a lower amount of social energy. And that's the amount of energy we consume and use when we're in different social situations. And it's a scale. So you might have loads in one and another and, you know, a quieter person might need to recharge for longer or take more time beforehand or sit quietly before they come on stage. Whereas someone with a higher level of social energy might need to fizz themselves a little bit more by being around loads of people before stepping on stage. So to give that tactic to someone who's quiet, it's not going to work because it's just going to overload them. 
So part of the work is, okay, then, and I call this like defining your controls, is like looking holistically at all the different contributing factors that can lead to success or reduce the risk of things going wrong and starting to uncover that and building that into a personal framework for them. And for a quieter person, that might include more quiet time, more time to reflect, more time to making sure they put in what they need to to step out of it straight away afterwards and let themselves come, whatever it may be. Whereas for a louder person, it might be a bit more bosh, bosh, get there early, meet everybody, da, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a long response there. I hope that's um, okay. Did that? Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's very different and it needs to feel authentic, I think, is is the most important thing. Hmm. I but metaphorically, I feel like I could just kick back, put my feet up and and uh, throw down some popcorn right now because I'm I'm <laughs> definitely eating all this up. So it, it definitely wasn't too long of a response. I when I first read for me the book Quiet by Susan Cain, which we spoke about, it in some ways is incredibly simple, but in in others it it almost redefined the way I looked at myself. I just I didn't realize that it was okay to be someone who needs more alone time and to recharge by being by myself. I just, it, I internalize that it is a better way to be, to be someone who's around people all the time, who can work the room, who is louder and, and all the different things that are opposite of my natural temperament. And so I imagine that a lot of the breakthroughs that you're helping people get, especially quiet folks are just around it's what you said. You are enough. Whether you're quiet or loud, you are enough. And so let's actually build something that works for your style. There isn't a right or wrong style. And right. it's which is brilliant and and also I think profound in a lot of ways that I it I went most of my life without realizing that that was okay. And mm. it, it breaks my heart in some ways, but it's beautiful to see that there's people out there who are helping folks get in touch with who they really are. I agree. And I think we're, we're pressing down a little bit into the topic of congruence here. Yes. And, you know, if, if incongruence is, is like your actions aren't what you want them to be, you know, I, I wish I could be like this, but I'm acting like this, that that's kind of incongruence as a gap. And then, you know, let's say like pure congruence is like, I'm exacting, I'm, act, I'm acting and behaving exactly how I want to be in the situations I want to be bringing that back to your comment here you know one of the things that is beautiful to see and is at the heart of the work that i'm trying to do we are doing is helping people go from oh i want to be like that person which is naturally incongruent and you're naturally never going to be like that person because you're not that person yeah to coming back and going oh actually i could just be me and this is so much easier and so much more freeing and like i don't I no longer create this gap between where I am and where I want to be. I can just say what I want to say and I can say it how I want to say it. And then once you, once that's landed, then that's when you can start to come up a level and go, okay, if this is what you want, now you can start playing a little bit more and, mm -hmm. and start going, okay, now I, I want to move into the space of, of like really playing with my tone of voice more. And, and that's when, but I say, rather than trying to do all that mm. stuff, let's really land this authenticity piece. And then if you want to explore more, that's when we come up into this other kind of area. But it starts from a place of authenticity. Yeah, 
Yeah. So it sounds like you're starting from like, let's just help you get comfortable in your own skin. Like, let's just get clear on who you are. And then the tools and all that stuff as an enhancement, it comes after, right? Is that is that what I'm hearing? It's a, it's not linear like that. But if I take like my six-week package, like it all kind of emerges. But I guess, sorry, what I meant by there is like, for those who come in thinking, oh, I really need to be like this because I'm so scared of being who I am. It's like, mm-hmm. actually, let's, let's, let's build you from the bottom up. And then if you really want to move into the kind of next level of, of polish and big stage stuff, then, then we can do that. But I guess another way to look at it is I have so many people come to me who are like, no, 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 I need bespoke coaching on how to create a really polished presentation. I say, okay, let's, let's really dive in on where you're at. Why do you want that? What's going on here? Well, don't know how to be. I don't think I could be myself. So I need to be like that. Da, 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 da. And it's like, okay, let's pull you back here. Let's go through this foundational stuff first, figure out what your storytelling style is, figure out what your natural body language is, figure out what your controls are, figure out what your ecosystem is, figure out your strategies for your nervous system, then see if you got enough. And actually mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, all those who were like, no, I need loads. They're like, actually, this is it. I'm, I'm off, you know, for better or worse for me as, as a coach, you know, um, <laughs> And yeah, so it's, but that kind of emerges over, over a coaching process rather than it's like, we've worked on this bit, it's done. And then it's, it's your, your skills and reframing is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Negative chatter in the mind. I'm not good enough. I won't show up the right way. I should be like this. They're going to think I'm not important. Da, 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 all these kind of things, which can trip people up. And if often I see a, an inability initially to distinguish between a thought and a belief Mm. and once through a bit of dialogue and reflection and reframing we create a bit of distance between thoughts and beliefs then sometimes people can go actually wait a minute that's just a thought you know just because it comes up in my head that i'm not good enough that doesn't mean i'm not good enough Mm -hmm. you know and and that that's that's part of the work here as well Mm -hmm. So on that last bit there, so the, the thought, you maybe you have the thought, I'm not good enough, but at a belief, at a deeper identity level, you can believe I am enough. I'm just having the thought that I'm not enough, but I am enough, right? Yeah, and it's, I mean, the phrase that's probably most popularly associated with this is imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a terrible, terrible name for something because it implies that it's some sort of illness that a, a small subset of people have. Um, but from what I've read and my kind of explorations in the area are, is that psychologists the world over generally agree that 80% of the world's population have these thought processes that, you know, I'm going to get found out, you know, oh, I, I, I lucked it into this. I'm not good enough. People shouldn't praise me. Da, 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 da. The problem is when those crystallize into core beliefs, you know, and then you operate from that space, but that person's not going to like my thing. People don't like me. I am not good enough. I am not likable. I am not successful, you know, and then we start to operate from there rather than going, okay, that's a thought that came up. I thought, I thought I'm going to continue anyway. And looking into case studies such as Tom Hanks, uh, Judy Dench, you know, she claims that she feels that she's going to get the sack on the first day of every film set 
she's a national treasure, but she says, I'm not going to let that stop me from giving it my best just because that thought came up. There's a great article that I'd encourage people to read if this is something they challenge with. It's it's uh, just Google it, unpacking Michelle Obama's imposter syndrome. And, you know, she's claiming that she can't, you know, she, the thought she has is that, you know, she's an imposter in standing up for women's rights, black women's rights and the likes. And, you know, but she's like, I'm going to do it anyway. Tom Hanks, Jennifer Lopez, you know, the list goes on. All people who have cited these thoughts, but they're aware they're just thoughts and not beliefs and not reality. So for storytelling style, mm. I actually, another another thing that I internalize from my youth is I just remember that a lot of my friends would tell stories. They were funny stories. It was, you know, someone was maybe embarrassed in the story and someone else did the, pulled the prank a lot. That was the, the storytelling that I grew up around. And so another thing that I internalized was I suck at telling stories. So I imagine if I started working with you, that would have been profound for me as well, that I would have learned, wow, I actually can tell stories in a different way. And I think I've backed into this, but I, I haven't intentionally looked at it quite this way before. So you were you were speaking to how if I were to name maybe some books and movies, pop culture that I'm drawn to, that that would be helpful in identifying the way that what I'm drawn to and what my storytelling style is. So I'm wondering if we could you know, work in real time, kind of work through what this would look like. I think this is a really valuable exercise. Yeah, we could have a go at this. So here's how I would would go about it. So, and anybody listening can have a go at this if you've got a pen and paper along alongside you. So I'd create three headings on a piece of paper. Beginning, middle, and end. And you can do this mic now if you want, if you've got something in front of you. Beginning, sure. middle, end. And then a final heading around tactics, tone, pace, etc. So anything else. And then what I would encourage you to do is close your eyes if it feels appropriate and then bring into your mind's eye books that you love, stories that you love, maybe films that you love, and maybe allow the one that's really your favorite to kind of take the four in your mind's eye to emerge. Okay. And then once you've landed on that something you really in love maybe it's your go-to one when you're feeling down or, or it's it's that one that you always recommend to people when they say what's your favorite film or what's your favorite book to then get a little bit of distance on what you're looking at and try to look at it structurally okay and then coming to your notepad looking at this structurally i would say okay underneath the beginning I want you to plot down two or three bullet points around structurally based on this place of preference that you're looking at. How does story, how does it generally tend to start? And we're looking at structure here rather than content. For example, some people like to see the ending immediately and then bang, it goes back six months and we see something else unpack. Other people like to see the end of the world right at the beginning. And then that spits out four different storylines and narratives that carry on. Other people just like a, a curtain opened on a normal life situation. Two people talking, having a cup of coffee. And then we're introduced to a bit of context, a bit of background. Okay, so, so have a look at that. 
And then as you come down into the next section, the middle section, have a think about how the story unpacks structurally and uh, how act two emerges. So, for example, some people like a key event that suddenly pivots things and it goes in a different way. Other people like a big challenge setup. Some people like a step-by-step linear through the process, keep it safe and normal, please, kind of approach through things. You know, <laughs> one's different. Other people like twists, they're constantly guessing. No idea. And then likewise, as you get to the ending piece, it would be okay having a look at a place of preference for you. How do you like them to end? Do you like it all tied up in a box with a bow on top, completely clean? Do you love a cliffhanger? Do you like a moral of the story? Do you like reflections? Do you like someone to die? Do you like a sad ending, a happy ending? And then finally, with the last piece, you know, tactics, tone, style, is there anything that just encapsulates this style for you in some words? Yeah, so I actually did partake in this exercise and I, there were a few, a few movies that came to mind. I, yeah. Okay, yep, go for it, go for it. Well, I'm really naturally drawn to teenage angsty movies. So the the movie Coda came to mind, which is a a talented singer who is is the only person who can hear. She's not deaf in a family of her brother's deaf and her parents are deaf. And I was also thinking the name actually of the movie escapes me, but it's a Haley Steinfeld. She's in I think it's Edge of Seventeen. Maybe is the name of the movie. And when I look at the general structure of the the storytelling that I'm drawn to, what I even if it's not a great movie, what I'm drawn to is there's a person who feels that they are different and doesn't know really what their place is. And so there's this question of like, who am I? Where do I really belong? There's lots of other established groups, but I don't really know. I'm kind of on the outside looking in. So the beginning is set up in a way that you know, this person is different than the rest of the herd and doesn't feel good about it. Who's feeling a little bit lost and is, is searching for themselves. The middle, there's, there's this identification of, I actually do have a gift and I want to explore what that gift is. And this gift actually creates some sort of disconnect with the other people who are in my life. Like my family doesn't know if it's really safe for me to explore this gift. I have to do this in secret. So in Coda, she's a, she sings and her family's deaf. And so she's kind of the glue who holds her family together, but also realizes that she comes most alive when she sings and her family doesn't like that. So she's, she's beginning to get more in touch with who she is, but it's also distancing her with her family. And I think in, in many other stories I'm drawn to, that's the case in, in a different set of different content, different set of circumstances, but and the end, in some way, the gift is honored as unifying in, in some way. So it's, it's unifying for the protagonist in that he or she comes back to their true essence and, and connects with this is something that I really care about. And there's a realization with the people who felt distance, the family, friends, all of the above, that this is this is where our daughter is coming alive and we want to be a part of this we don't want it to be distance we want to support her in in her journey so that that's uh does that give a, a sense of my storytelling style definitely and if we had uh 
loads of time when we're really diving into this, what I'd be encouraging you to do is to then unpack the next level down. So for example, you say, you know, that the the daughter has this. It's like, what is it about that that you love? Mm-hmm. What is it that you get? But what I'm hearing here, so if I look at the themes and then I can share kind of how I would suggest you could use this, for example, because there's two ways that you can use this. So if your style that we've uncovered very quickly here, let's let's caveat that, mm-hmm. is the way that you like your stories to start is generally you go for more human rather than big and dramatic. And that's the kind of style that you like. There's these themes around being different, being lost, maybe a single person different from the herd. So the herd seems like a theme and then something that's different as a theme. And this is the kind of thing that you like to explore at the beginning. Okay. So there's this thing that's generally seen as normal. And then there's something that's a bit different. And this is explored and surfaced at the beginning. Then we come down into maybe like the journey of the person or the thing that's different, discovering what their secret source is, which then, again, actually maybe emphasizes that difference initially Mm -hmm. before then some sort of process of reconciliation, perhaps through working through a series of challenges that then bring us down to, to this kind of unification piece where what I'm seeing in my mind is at the top where we had like the herd of say white sheep and then black sheep over here or whatever it might be, you know, these all come together as a single herd, mm-hmm. you know, to, towards the end. So if that's your style, if you like, from a, from a structural point of view, you know, I would say, okay, there's two ways in which you can express that. And the first is literal. So if somebody said, Hey, Mike, you got to write a story, then you could rather than starting or where shall I start? You'd come here and go, okay, well, what do I like generally? What works for me as a place of preference, of a place of familiarity that subconsciously I'm already connected to? Well, I like this idea of a herd and an outsider. Okay, so what might be my herd that I want to write about? What might be the outsider? What might be the challenge? What might be the gift? And and you've got a structure there to port a story and that will feel subconsciously authentic. The second way you can use it, which is a little bit more appropriate for business, if you like, is laterally. Or metaphorically. So let's say you have to deliver a pitch to a client about whilst why your services are the right ones for them. And you're like, oh, I don't really know how to go about that. You want to pull on your own storytelling styles. Okay, when you're crafting this presentation, what could you metaphorically see as your herd in the presentation? What could like metaphorically be seen as the outsider? Maybe the herd is everybody's successful and the outsider is the client at the moment. Yeah. What's the challenges they're facing? You know, well, what's the secret source that that client needs in order to reunify with their audience or whoever it is? And how do we bring these two together in the final part of the presentation? Hmm. So it's it's all about tactics like this that pull on things that are already kind of like part of the individual's identity based on preference. So I would say this is the first written version of your natural storytelling style if your natural storytelling style is based on a place of familiarity, preference, warmth, comfort, which to me seems like a pretty good place to start. Mm-hmm. And something something I came across recently, so thank you for doing that exercise, first of all. It's really helpful. And I, I haven't explicitly worked through what my storytelling style is, although I, I tend to skew towards me being open and vulnerable about myself as a a way of connecting with my audience, let's say. I Something I heard recently is if you spot it, you got it as well. 
And mm-hmm. so something I've been looking at is if I look up to someone, I, I actually think this lines up with congruence because I, there is a way where if we think there's a distinction, right? Like if I think I need to be a certain way, that is not the same as me connecting with the quality that I'm most drawn to. So for someone like Brene Brown, for instance, I'm really drawn to her speaking style. And if you were to ask me, so I guess step one there is identify who is someone who's a speaker that I look up to. Step two, which is, has been one of the recurring themes of, of this conversation is, well, why are you drawn to her? Right? Why are you feeling this way? And I am drawn to her vulnerability. So in, in the essence, in the spirit of if you've spotted, you, you got it. Vulnerability is clearly a quality that I am really drawn to. Not that I need to be like Brene Brown, but that's a quality that I want to aspire to. And actually, I have lots of access to. And, th- and that could also inform the way that I look at communicating. And if I'm wanting to have a certain effect on the audience, then that might be a good indicator. You know, like if it, if it sparks something in me, then I have that spark too. Do you, is that something that you in some way look at? Yeah. So for me, the inspiration versus imitation, mm-hmm. I think, is is what we're talking about here. And it's really important, I believe, to draw inspiration from those that you feel drawn to. But we're not trying to imitate them because when we try to imitate, we feel incongruent. We don't feel like us. But when we're inspired by someone, inspiration then triggers our own action because Brene Brown can be vulnerable and you can be vulnerable and you can be inspired by her vulnerability to then explore your own vulnerability in a way that feels like you, but you're not imitating her vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like that. You you spot it, you got it. And I'm trying to think of a, a catchy way to, to, to kind of rephrase that as like, if you spot something you love, maybe it will help you unlock that part of you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost if we come back to what we were talking a little bit about at the beginning of the conversation, like the tools for working on self-awareness and it's, it's, you know, you can see something in other people that you feel inside of you mm-hmm. and that comes back down. So, okay, when you feel something, that's, that's a cue to then explore it, express it, act on it. And that's exactly what it sounds like you've done through, through seeing this and being inspired by it, then feeling it through you know what i would call emotional contagion you felt that emotion Hmm. and then you've gone on and then expressed it in your own way um and what's interesting about what you said actually is like you know we went through that activity of the 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 herd and the outlier and and this that and the other and then you said you know my style is very much about sharing my story and being vulnerable i wonder if part of your story is that you felt like that outlier in a herd Absolutely. And you can see how that then connects. So the vulnerability is really clear, that thread through that that style. Very much a central theme to my story is and and there was this yearning to in a lot of ways I felt like I was so close to being someone who could be the you know, the the classic American male who's really good at sports and is good looking and intelligent and smooth with women. And I I felt like it was all like just the arms reach away. But 
it was never really who I was. And so that's, I, I do think that has absolutely been a central theme to my story is that I have tried fitting in. I, Brene Brown also makes the distinction of fitting in versus belonging. And I was really good at fitting in for all of my life, but I never really felt like I belonged. And that, and that continues to be something that I am working through. Where do I really belong? And not, not in a way that people love me because I meet certain conditions and have certain qualities, but that I, I really am enough in, in all of who I am. And that I guess that, that does link to the way I look at the end of a story is that I, that feels central to me for all of, of human struggles and striving is that we all want to find where do we, you know, where, where can we be all of who we are? And, and I am of the belief actually that we're all made of the same stuff, even though we express it very differently, that we all we want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to matter. And, and we want to be loved, love and, and be loved. You know, I think that that's, it's not all that the expression of that's very different, but it's not all that different for the end result. And, and that's why I'm drawn to maybe you would call it oneness, wholeness, the unification, all those are really moving and meaningful to me. And everything you say resonates with me. And uh, you went, I realize I'm asking you questions now. <laughs> I think you're asking me, but this is really great. This is a lovely conversation. I love it. So we, we, we said, here's the beginning, here's the vulnerability, and it's the, the outlier. And then, and then we said, here's the end of the story, the wholeness, the oneness. I'm wondering in that middle bit, what's the gift? Mm, what's my gift? Yeah. Hmm. I think that I'm more easily than most people able to see the true essence. I, I call it the heart. Like I'm able to see into the heart of people, their true essence, regardless of what cultural narratives are placed on the person. I can see the, there's a scene. It, I don't know if you know the show Ted Lasso, but no, it's actually based in, it's about an American football coach who becomes the, the coach of a, a football, a, a UK football club, soccer club. And it's really a, a leadership story. It's, it's about a guy who knows nothing about soccer slash football, but who understands people really well. And uh, one of the bosses in the show, she is in a room full of lots of different men. She's able to see that inside all of these air quotes, powerful, abrasive, power hungry, you know, status hungry men, there's a, an insecure five-year-old boy who's just trying to secure their existence. And, and she, there's actually a scene where she's able to see at this big boardroom table, she, we get the visual of each little five-year-old who's actually sitting at that table. And I've been more intentional about it recently, but I think I've always been able to see the true heart and spirit and essence of people. And uh, re regardless of how, uh, air quotes again, how annoying they might be or what their strategies are, how effective or ineffective they are, I just, I believe that people are really good and I don't have to convince myself of that. That just feels true to me. So I, that is my gift. I, there's sometimes where I, I give someone a compliment that feels not like a big deal to me. I'm just like, this is it's obvious. Everyone must say this to you. And I can see the way that the person on the receiving end of that compliment goes, thank you. Oh, that means that really means so much to me. So I'm realizing more and more that seeing the best in people, the, the highest version of people is a gift that I have. I love it.
I love it. And I can see that and hear that. Cool. Cool. Oh, this is great. I love how we've weaved our way around this. This is yeah. Great. I have I have some other questions and and at, at the end I always kick it to you for if, if there's anything that we didn't get to today, I, I would love for you to just bring it into the conversation. But before that, I, I was really drawn to in, in preparation, you talked about I love flipping convention on its head also. It's another thing I love. And two myths that you presenced in the prep for this conversation are, well, let's do one at a time. The myth of rapport. <laughs> what, when you wrote that, what do you mean by that? I hate rapport. And I'm going to say it loud and proud. I can't stand rapport. And you can write that down and you can quote me on that. I really dislike the concept that in order to be authentic with someone, you somehow have to build and earn rapport. Because in my experience, it just blocks communication. And it's really simple to see this in action. And I think everybody can relate to this story. You go into a meeting that's been set up and then you have to meet someone else who's also been asked to come to that meeting and you two haven't met. Mm -hmm. Hi. Yeah. You know, there's this kind of weird social anxiety there that, 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 that blocks you from being authentic and creates this kind of awkward dialogue, which nearly always is wrapped up in some perceived dynamic of status or power or hierarchy or oh, this person's older this person's more experienced i don't really know how to speak to them they're the ones who are gonna i'm trying to sell to them they're the ones with the money and it, and it, it blocks us yeah or when a brand new uh, you get a new boss come into your company or a new colleague that you have to work with those first interactions are stilted and inauthentic and then four weeks later, you've been working with these people. Hey, you can talk completely normally and you're okay and you're fine. Now think how much time and authenticity is lost in those periods, yeah? And this is why I hate the idea that it's something that you should have to build with people. And in the world of improvisation, we say instead of like building rapport, assume it. Mm. Assume rapport from the get-go. Well, how do you do that? So one of the tools that I give my clients is if they know they're going into a situation where they're unsure how to speak to this person, because that's what this is. They haven't got that rapport. They don't know exactly how to be around them. Something's stopping them. And it's usually around status, power, hierarchy, etc. Then I would say, get a piece of paper and write down the answer to this question. How would I speak if I had a strong relationship with this person? And just see what comes out your pen. And you know, it may not transform your life, but hey, it might shave off some of that time. It might just give you something more authentic to step into. You know, the same goes with with trust, you know, in, in improvisation. They say, no, you don't earn the trust of your stage partners. You just assume it. Mm -hmm. Just assume trust from the get-go. Like, like, don't put up a barrier. And yes, you may need to be more vulnerable to do that, but they get the whole you. And the vast majority of the time, the other person will present with the whole them as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So be that person to be you. Don't wait for the other person to be them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely this notion, deep-seated cultural belief that rapport and trust both need to be earned. Mm -hmm. And actually making that assumption of both of those, making the, the opening bid of rapport and trust 
is a beautiful invitation and one that I want to continue to integrate in my life. There's, I've had some incredible conversations, really open dialogues with folks like, including with you, Matt, you know, like I, I think that we very quickly were able to assume trust and rapport and share, even before this podcast, we had a check-in with each other. We shared some really personal shit. We did indeed. And I, because of lots of conditioning, that still sometimes feels challenging for me, like a, like I'm doing it wrong or something, right? Like, you don't you don't know this guy. Are you going to burden him with, with, you know, stuff that you're struggling with right now? Like, what, why would you want to do that? But very rarely, very rarely, if at all, have I spoken something that was true to me in that moment and have it be weaponized or tossed away in some way especially recently, maybe when I was a kid, I'm sure these strategies are there for a reason. But given that I'm not a child anymore, it it seems to me to be, I enjoy personally, I don't want to be prescriptive, but it feels much more easeful in my life to be sharing what is actually true for me in any given moment than to try and, you know, dance around it. And I'll talk to them real in six months from now when we actually know each other a little bit better. So I I really appreciate you bringing this into the conversation. And yeah, go ahead if there's more you want to say about this. Yeah, just a little, because I think you really landed on something important there. And for me, this, this links directly to being able to reframe. So one exercise I often say to my clients is, okay, if you're thinking you can't say this or you don't want to be like this, I say, okay, just take a second, take off your shoes. Now walk over to that person that you're talking about and put their shoes on for a moment and then take a look at yourself and then ask yourself, okay, how do I want me to be? You know, if I was that person looking at me, how would I want me to be? And it's always, gosh, I'd want them to be honest. I want them to be themselves. I want them to feel comfortable. And, you know, it's a really powerful but simple thing to just suspend that judgment a little bit and put on the other person's shoes and you usually say actually you know actually really all they would want is is for me to feel comfortable around that person and say what i want to say mm-hmm. so the the other myth that you in preparation for this conversation put down is i i'm curious to hear this one because so many people in public speaking space talk about how do you want the audience to feel after this talk which i, I think can be really valuable because it gets maybe down to the essence of what what's the intention behind this talk? What am I trying to convey? But when you talk about the myth of focusing on audience needs, what are, what are you pointing to there? Okay. It's a good question. Yeah. I see everybody say it's all about the audience, really, really focus everything on the audience. But I think in doing so there, you are very much at risk of losing sight of what's authentic. And I believe in focusing on the feeling that you want the audience to leave with but that will only work if you express that feeling authentically yourself and that only will work if you let go of the audience outcome and come back to really saying what you want to say through the lens of emotion that you want to display it too much focus is made on trying to meet the needs of an audience in the public speaking world at the expense of authenticity and that's when we start to move into the space of I'm doing everything for you, but I'm not really bought into what I'm saying. And that then shows up when you are on stage, 
when you're in that meeting and is almost like a it's almost like an extension in one respect of people pleasing i'm going to do everything for you at the expense of myself mm-hmm. you know whereas actually what i believe is the most engaging thing to listen to and to see in another person is what they really believe and what they really feel and i challenge anyone listening to this to think about the most inspiring talks they've ever seen yeah or the ones that whether it's from a family member or otherwise you know a tedx speaker and you know ask yourself the question are they putting everything they've got into trying to meet the need or are they like utterly themselves and being authentic and actually the thing that will land the most with an audience is if you really say what you want to say the way you want to say it and talk about the thing that you want to talk about like true passion from that space and whether or not the audience like your content they'll get you Mm. and i think pulling yourself back from this idea of all about the audience and i say there's a a pyramid basically with it that you need to sit within and there's three pillars in that pyramid is your audience is your content and then there's you and the first trap is that you focus only on the audience and then that way you lose sight of what's the authentic content or the authentic way to deliver it you know so it's like come back in come into the center ground so you've got a general balance on all three make your content and the way you speak really authentic and then that'll land with the audience um but too much focus yeah you lose sight of i find you lose sight of yourself well, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm wondering if you, you mentioned at one point the six-point speaker program, if if there's anything about that that you want to share or anything at all that we haven't addressed about yourself or the work that you're doing in this that, that we haven't spoken about in this conversation or any other loops that you want to close about what we have spoken about. I, I'll kick it to you if there's anything at all that you would like to continue to share on right now. There's nothing that kind of burning that I feel we haven't touched on. I felt this has been a really wonderful conversation, really nice conversation. And we've touched on all, all sorts of facets here, haven't we? We've looked, we've looked at storytelling. We've looked at childhood. We've looked at personality styles. We've looked at quiet people. It's all been really good. So I don't have a huge amount that, that I feel like, Oh, I didn't say this. You know, mm-hmm. I feel this has just been a really lovely organic exploration, you know, so, so nothing further to add, you know, I'm happy to talk through the six point speaker program, like in case people are interested, like the pillars that I think people should explore to get confident, to feel what they've got. And it's, it's, you know, I think being aware, number one of how you prepare, how you rehearse in your body is really important rather than in your head. I think number two, I think it's really important to make sure you feel in control of the situations and everything that that leads up to public speaking events. Number three that we've looked at today, I think making sure you're aware of your storytelling style and how to work with emotions and descriptions. That's really important. Number four, I think it's really important to be aware of your body and your voice and how to utilize that and to bring a level of conscious design to that. Number five, to be aware of how your nervous system works, why Mm. it works the way it works, kind of exploring what works for you to keep you calm what doesn't work and kind of diving into that space. In fact, there's a great book called The Pressure Principle by Dr. Dave Aldred. He was Johnny Wilkinson's coach, who was um, one of the great rugby players when England had their very rare World Cup win many moons ago. And it's his book on how to perform under pressure. 
you know, and then finally having to think about how you integrate all this stuff together into your own communications. And, you know, I found that those, those six things, you know, move into that space. Cause that's, that's where the gold is. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, and I feel the same way about this conversation that we, we covered so many different aspects that are, they've brought up insight for me. I imagine they'll bring up lots of insight for the audience and they've been really clarifying about things that, you know, you've been in this arena a little bit longer than I have. And and so it has helped me deepen some beliefs that I've been in some ways dancing around and, and haven't had my finger firmly on. And I feel like my finger is closer to firmly on some of these things that I'm believing that I think the greatest gift that you can have as a speaker is just being comfortable with who you are. And there's so much that goes into that and you address it really beautifully in your work. But I, that is to me the long and short of being a really good speaker is that you feel that you can show up as you and communicate something that matters to you. People are moved by that. And I'm, yeah. I'm certainly really moved by that. So that's a, that's a beautiful note to, to end the, the most of the beginning part of the conversation. And I just have a few more questions for you that are rapid fire in nature. They, they don't have anything necessarily to do with public speaking or coaching, but that I like to ask at the back end of every interview and, one of them is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Stepping into my garden, hmm. particularly at this time of year, feeling the sun on my face and looking at my bonsai trees. Hmm. Hmm. Where do you feel most unfinished or maybe what's an edge that you're most deeply exploring right now in your life? Physical health. Hmm. Really trying to get my body where I want my body to be in alignment. So it's an area that focus for me. When you hear the word success, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? Arnold Schwarzenegger, classic rags to riches story, incredible goal setter, dive into his background and his philosophy. You see, he's actually got a lot of heart and purpose behind what he does. And uh, it was a childhood inspiration to me and still is better worse as an adult. Awesome. So where would you invite folks to connect with you online or otherwise? The best way to connect with me is my website, www.thespeakingcoach.co.uk. I'm also mm -hmm. on Instagram and on Twitter as at improv change. Awesome. So I'll make sure I link to the website, Instagram, and Twitter in the show notes. I, I believe you have a, a YouTube channel as well. So I'll, I'll make sure that I link there. I know that you're not as active on that, but I'll give I'll give people all the places that they can find you. And right. the the final question, Matt, that I ask in every single interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know, I, I've heard probably over 80 iterations of uh answers to this question. So I, I love hearing all the different flavors of responses I get. What does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? A good question. I think to me, to live a meaningful life is to live a life in line with your values as congruently as possible to the benefit of yourself and consciously to the benefit of those around you. Well, beautiful answer, Matt. And I 
as I've said, it seems many times over the course of the conversation, I, I really got a lot out of this one. I, I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. And as I continue to step more into the public speaking space and arena, I, I really admire, appreciate, and look up to the work that you're doing. And I, I don't know if there's a more important, maybe in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, besides like true life-threatening needs being met in terms of self-actualization, which a lot of people in the, in the coaching space are, are doing, I, I don't know if there's a more important thing that we can do, a more important gift we can give someone than to help them feel really, truly comfortable with who they are and that they are enough exactly as they are. And it's really refreshing to see this done in the public speaking space where there's a lot of posturing around it's, I don't think it's intended, but I do see a lot of, it would reinforce you are not enough as, as a communicator, as a speaker, that actually the way to be enough is to build this very specific skill set that will make you more charming and louder and to, and channel this other person that, that isn't you. And, and congruence came up several times throughout this conversation. I experienced you to be living in congruence, that you were really able to calmly and clearly work through in real time all the things that you have done in your life that have been foundational for you and ways that you're supporting clients feel comfortable with who they are. I immediately in conversation with you felt a sense of safety that this person's not going to harm me or hurt me or weaponize anything against me. This person is an ally, someone that I deeply trust. And so I, I just really appreciate that you took the time to be here, to work through your material that you use and, and who you are in real time, giving me permission to feel safer being who I am in this moment. And the incredible gift of anyone who's listening, will, I'm certain that they will feel safer being who they are and, and find that in some way that they probably feel one step closer to uh being the communicator that they want to be in their life, because we all have incredible gifts if we're willing to get in touch with who we are. That's that's the long and short of it for me. Right, really beautifully said. Thank you for your words, and very much loving the work that you're doing and the conversations these podcasts are are going on and and taking people on the journeys it's taking people on. I think it's really beautiful, utterly lovely. The past half an hour and a half being here talking about this with you really, really has. Thank you so much, Matt. So for everyone who's listening, I, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. I hope that you realize that regardless of your personality style, you are enough and take good care. Lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.